The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live. I'm Lisa Belfast, writer at Barron's. Thanks for joining us today. With us, we have Torsten Slock, Chief Economist, Apollo Global Management. Welcome, Torsten. Thanks for having me, Lisa. So today we're going to talk about changing monetary policy and what it means for investors. Markets are quickly pricing in more tightening. Torsten, what is behind the shift in expectations? Yeah, what's a very important backdrop is that we are coming out of the virus uh, with a much stronger labor market than what uh, the Fed and the consensus and we had expected just uh, even six months ago. We also have higher inflation. So the dual mandate for the Federal Reserve is two things. They need full employment and we need inflation at 2%. And we have inflation now in the latest numbers at 7, which of course is substantially above 2 And at the same time, we are really approaching full employment because wages are going up in a number of different sectors in the economy. So if the Fed's goal is to meet its dual mandate of full employment and inflation at 2%, then uh, it does make sense that they are beginning to move towards rate hikes, simply because the economy has recovered faster than what they thought here, in particular, uh, 18 months ago, but now also even just uh, 6, 12 months ago. What was the game changer, you know, up until... Pretty recently, we had a lot of Fed officials, lots of economists and investors believing that the rise in inflation was, you know, in the Fed's words, transitory, that this was related to the pandemic and all of these sort of supply chain kinks would work themselves out and we'd go back to normal inflation readings. But things have moved fast. It seems like, you know, between the Fed dropping the transitory language to markets going from expecting a 2023 rate liftoff to now several this year, more next year. What is behind the fast change in in what's going on here? It is quite uh, interesting how the Fed has changed their view exactly as you're outlining. If you go back and look at the March 2021 FOMC meeting. At that time, the Fed and the FOMC was clearly saying, we do not expect to raise interest rates in 2022. And they did not expect either to raise interest rates in 2023. But then as you look, there were the uh, subsequent meetings, they basically ended up saying in the December meeting, just literally six months later, well, now we think that it's time to begin to hike rate three times in 2022 and three times in 2023 and two times more in 2024. So you're right. The change in their view in terms of what needs to be done has been very, very quick and very quite significant relative to uh, what they have been saying now, uh, obviously, for a very long time when interest rates have remained zero. And what really made them change their view is inflation. In the beginning, exactly as you just said, inflation was driven by temporary forces. It was driven by two things, namely by supply chain problems, which obviously pushes prices up of the uh, goods and services that we buy in stores and that we, uh, generally speaking, uh, get, of course, through the supply chain. And that was something that had, of course, a temporary impact because everyone expected 
this was also our expectation that the supply chains would eventually, uh, the problems would eventually get resolved and the kinks would eventually get straightened out. The other temporary factor was energy prices also was going up. They were going up quite substantially also. And that's also, even as we speak, putting some upward pressure on inflation. But those two things, they were indeed temporary. So it was correct that the Fed said there were some tra transitory reasons why inflation was moving up. But we have in the last, in particular, nine months moved away from just having a transitory inflation problem to having now a more permanent inflation problem because now the forces that are pushing upward pressure on inflation have switched more broadly to be wage inflation and also house price inflation. And those are things that the Fed actually can do something about by raising interest rates. So the key answer to your question is that inflation initially came really mainly from supply problems, in particular the supply chain, also on the energy side. And we have transition to now a much more permanent inflation risk, namely that wages are going up quite substantially in a number of different sectors in the economy. And at the same time, home prices also give quite a boost to inflation. So the key risk for markets, and that's the uncertainty that we're facing, of course, both in equities and rates at the moment, namely that the inflation outlook is quite unclear for the Federal Reserve, but we do know that it's much higher than where it should be. And that's one of the key reasons why they have changed their view and why they are about to raise rates. And can you explain why wages are such a focus of central bankers and economists when it comes to monitoring the inflation situation? Yeah, I mean, you normally wages going up. This is what is good for the economy. And if wages go up, uh, then, of course, that's helpful for GDP. That's helpful for consumption. That's generally uh, something, of course, uh, that is very good for increasing overall uh, if you will, uh, welfare and how people are doing in the economy. The problem is when wages go up too much, uh, there are certain sectors in the economy, in leash on hospitality, in restaurants, in nail salons, if you think about, broadly speaking, construction, if you think about healthcare, if you think about uh, uh, manufacturing, you have seen very significant wage increases. In some cases, wages have been going up 15, 20% year over year, in particular in industries that are face-to-face -face industries where you have had quite a significant decline in labor supply where not many people have yet come back and taken their old jobs uh, that they used to have, which has basically been holding labor supply back. So the one answer to your question is that there have been some restrictions probably because of COVID in terms of how many people have been able to come back and take their old jobs. We still we lost 22 million jobs in March and April of 2020. We have recreated about 18 million of those. So we still need to recreate another 4 million. And because of COVID, there's still probably a lot of people who are not quite either able to come back themselves or because they have to take care of some family and parents or children that are not able to come back. And that has created a very tight labor market where the quits rate, meaning the share of people who voluntarily quits their jobs every month, is now at the highest level in 20 years. In other words, the churn in the labor market is very high. And that has created this, to your question, fairly substantial upward pressure on wages. And I think at the core of this issue is the virus is still a problem. I know Omicron is probably going to look a lot better uh, in a few months' time, meaning we'll probably see the numbers come down in terms of infections. But there's still about 15 million people in the U.S. that are suffering from long COVID, meaning they still have health consequences that are still not likely to come back and take those 4 million jobs that they used to have. And that's all putting a lot of upward pressure on wages. And specifically to your question, why is this important? Well, because if wages at the moment, they're going up 4.7% year over year, you could say that, well, is that a big deal? Well, it's not a, such a big deal on its own unless it begins to have the risk that it could spill over to inflation also going up, which then 
opens up the fear, of course, uh, among uh, many FOMC members are talking about this at the moment, whether we will have a risk of going back to the 1970s, a wage price spiral where wage expectations start to go up, inflation expectations start to go up, and ultimately people start changing behavior if homes come too ex- become too expensive, if cars become too expensive, if it becomes too expensive to fill gas on your car. So inflation overall, a little bit of inflation, both on prices and wages, is what the Fed normally would like to see. That's why their goal is consumer price inflation at 2%. But if there's too much inflation, it starts to change behavior among consumers and corporates. And that's not only a risk, of course, to the overall output, but also a risk to margins and profit margins, which is the E and the PE ratio that will begin to be impacted if labor costs go up. Remember, around two-thirds of cost for the average cost is labor cost. So that means that wage inflation and what's going on in the inflationary front does turn out to be very important, not only for interest rates and the Fed, but also for credit markets and for equity markets. So you mentioned interest rate increases obviously coming, and we've got a a Fed meeting, an FOMC meeting coming up next week. Um, One thing that it seems a lot of investors are wondering about is the Fed's balance sheet. Can you tell us why this time, this cycle, the Fed's balance sheet is in such focus, um, you know, in addition to the normal rate increases, maybe even more important in, in some ways than the rate increases that are coming? And I've been reading your uh, column in uh, the magazine, of course, every week uh, for many years now. And and you have written about this. And I think that this is indeed something that is very important for financial markets now. Remember that uh, during the pandemic, uh, the Federal Reserve has aggressively been buying treasuries and mortgages. In fact, if you go back and look at the numbers, on average, uh, the Fed has bought about $150 billion dollars in treasuries on average every month since the pandemic began in March of 2020. The purchases more recently have been winding down. So now more recently, they have only been buying 80 billion in treasuries and 40 billion in mortgages. And they're now going to end that uh, by March. Uh, Jay Powell and the FMC have already told us that asset purchases are going to conclude uh, in about two months' time. Uh, so the conclusion, of course, for us in markets is that asset purchases of this magnitude of course, has had a very significant impact on the level of interest rates, in particular in the long end of the yield curve. And many in markets have, of course, been concluding, and the consensus, broadly speaking, has uh, drawn the conclusion that, well, the very significant asset purchases from the Federal Reserve has not only been helpful in lowering interest rates, it's actually also been helpful in boosting the stock market, and it's also been helpful in narrowing credit spreads, because a lot of the people who sold treasuries to the Fed when the Fed bought 80 billion in treasuries every single month, they were sitting with 80 billion in cash and said, what should I do with this money? And a lot of that money ended up finding its way into more risky assets, such as credit markets, investment grade and high yield and also loans. And also a lot of that ended up probably in equities. So that's why the policy of buying assets by the Federal Reserve, if you think that that has been having this very significant positive impact on financial markets, you must also symmetrically conclude that the answer now is that, well, if they stop doing that policy, we should begin to worry about what that might mean for risky assets, in particular for the stock market, but also for credit spreads, if the Fed is no longer providing this significant amount of liquidity. So in some sense, markets are hit by a double whammy at the moment that not only are interest rates going up, but QE is also ending. And that's the goal with that, of course, for the Federal Reserve is to tighten financial conditions. It is the goal for the Fed to try to cool the economy down and to limit risk taking in the economy and importantly, limit risk taking in financial markets. So one very important issue here is that it is the idea from the Federal Reserve to try to 
widen gradually credit spreads and also likely to get the stock market to gradually decline a bit so that risk taking in the economy cools down everything and therefore ultimately remember the goal with this is to cool down inflation so that's why the balance sheet and the running down the balance sheet is an added dimension to raising interest rates namely trying to tighten financial conditions very gradually try to make sure that the economy does get this soft landing that they're trying to achieve so i think this is a good time to remind our listeners to please submit any questions um, in the q a box if you've got any questions for torsten um, and on that note we have a couple of listener questions here one is from hal hal asks what do higher interest rates achieve? Um, suppression of business activity, suppression of job growth. And he asks, are these good things? That's correct. I mean, it does sound somewhat counterintuitive to say that high interest rates is good news. But remember, the Fed's goal here is to try to avoid a situation where inflation expectations and inflation and wages and wage expectations start to spiral out of control. So the Fed's aim at the end of the day is to try to achieve a soft landing where we gradually slow down activity in the housing market, where we gradually slow down consumer spending, we gradually slow down capex spending, meaning capital expenditure spending by corporates, and thereby try to get GDP growth to slowly get down to a more sustainable level relative to this, uh, in their view, relatively overheated level that we're at at the moment. But you're absolutely right. It is a very difficult exercise to try to engineer a soft landing. And there is a broader discussion, of course, about can the Fed successfully engineer this soft landing that they're trying to achieve. So, so you know, that said, and, and you mentioned the stock market hasn't been, um, hasn't been very pretty out there lately. What can investors expect, you know, in terms of um, in terms of the stock market and tech in particular? Um, how about other markets like housing? Where are we headed with all this? Yeah, this is very important. I mean, if you if you lean back and think about what's going on in financial market is really unique. Normally, when we are in a business cycle, we are in an expansion. Then, of course, stock market should be going up. Uh, everything should be looking good from a stock market perspective, because remember, Normally, the stock market goes down during a recession, but during expansions, if you go back to the 1930s and look at every single quarter and look at how the stock market traded, normally, if there is an expansion and GDP is going up, then in about 75% of those quarters, you have had that the stock market has actually gone up. So what is it that's happening over the last several weeks? Why is it that here in the, since the beginning of 2022, we've seen the stock market sell off so much? The problem for the Fed is that we are going into this rate hike cycle at valuations in the stock market that are very high by historical standards, at valuations in credit markets and in both investment grade and high yield that are very high, meaning spreads that are very narrow. So that means that we are beginning the rate hike cycle from a much more vulnerable perspective in terms of where financial markets are, in particular risky assets, again, the stock market and credit markets. So that means that normally, when we come out of a recession, think about the 2008-2009 recession, then it is the case that the Fed begins to hike rates later. And at that point, stock markets are not as elevated and credit markets are not as elevated in terms of valuations. But because of partly because of the Fed money printing and all the aggressive initiatives that the Fed did, also because of the fiscal policy response, we saw financial markets come back very, very quickly from the pandemic. And in some sense, financial markets entered a late cycle stage much quicker than what they normally would do. And now the Fed is about to raise rates when financial markets have already gone up very, very quickly 
much faster than what we've normally seen. So in some sense, the answer to that question is that we are simply at a stage in the business cycle is looking relatively overheated and risky assets, meaning the stock market and credit markets also look like they're late cycle, but rates and interest rates are still looking like they are early cycle. We haven't even raised interest rates yet. So in some sense, the risk here, of course, is that the Fed is behind. And therefore, once they do begin to raise interest rates and again, combined with a double whammy of QE turning to QT, meaning that they were buying assets and now they're going to run down assets later this year. That ultimately is at risk of having a much more turbulent impact on the stock market. So that's why growth stocks and tech, to your question, Lisa, has not they have not been performing very well over the last few weeks because they're no longer driven by fundamentals. It's not driven by that the business cycle looks good and earnings is going to look good. Some of that is because of higher nominal growth, because of higher inflation, but it's more driven by that valuations were simply so high that the stock market is now much more vulnerable and much more sensitive to rising interest rates rather than being driven by fundamentals. So we need to go through this turbulent period, which will last a, a while longer, in my expectation, where the Fed is going to hike interest rates and financial markets in particular, again, the stock market and tech and growth stocks will then be going through a much more um, difficult and uncertain outlook because the outlook for those assets are simply not driven by fundamentals, but driven much more by the hunt for yield, having allocated so much money for so long time into these more risky assets that are just not driven by fundamentals, but instead by Fed action. And I think that's why Fed action more generally, I mean, we still think about a few weeks ago, as you also wrote about in your column, the Fed minutes. Normally, the market doesn't pay any attention to Fed minutes, but suddenly the Fed minutes became a key driver of this in P500. It tells us very importantly that the market is beginning and it should be paying a lot more attention to what's happening from the Fed front because the risk-free rate has been low essentially since 2008, meaning the Fed funds rate has essentially been low for more than a decade. And the Fed is now telling us we are about to lift this and potentially lift this much faster than what the market expects. And that's creating these tensions in these asset classes that have simply just been much more vulnerable because valuations have come up so much because everyone has just been used to for so long. They buy everything rally that the stock market and in particular tech and growth could only go up. You know, that um, connects to a question from Karen. She asks, how far do you think the Federal Reserve is prepared to tighten monetary policy over the next couple of years? And that connects to a question of my own, which, you know, the sort of broader idea, uh, you know, um, what you were just talking about with the market reaction and vulnerability because of high valuations and easy money for so long. Um, you know, investors for a long time have counted on this idea that the Fed will um, be there to backstop markets, the, the idea of the Fed put. But it seems like this time it might be different. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, Karen's asking how long, how, how far can the Fed really go? And I'm wondering to what extent market reaction, as you've described, might limit the Fed, you know, if, if we can um, assume that there is still a Fed put, or is it really so different this time because inflation has gotten um, a lot hotter than, than they expected? Absolutely. I think it's very important to go back to previous episodes when we in markets have said, oh, there is a Fed put, they will come to the rescue if markets go down, quote unquote, too much. I think it's very important now that 
on the, none of these episodes did we have 7% inflation on headline CPI and 5.5% on core inflation. So I do think that this time is different in the sense that the Fed has a very, very clear goal to make sure that inflation comes down. The good news is that the temporary problems that I mentioned from supply chain and energy, just the base effects, meaning the way that inflation is measured as a 12-month window, we will begin to see inflation come down over the coming quarters. The key question is just for the Fed, how quickly will it come down? Because there's a quite a distance from seven where we are today to two. So if it takes too long time, then the Fed, of course, will worry that inflation will be too elevated for too long a period. So the first thing that we really keep to constantly focus on here is that the Fed's goal with what they're doing at the moment, both with raising interest rates and starting to run down the balance sheet, that goal is to try to get inflation under control. So with that backdrop, I do think that things are different. We can't just assume that if financial markets sell off uh, 5% in the stock market, that then the Fed will come to the rescue and say, oh, now we're going to turn dovish because stocks are down. I think the Fed will say, no, that's not our goal. Our goal is not to try to target the stock market or credit spreads or even the level of long-term interest rates. Their goal is to try to make sure that inflation doesn't become too big a problem. Because again, if you look at the consumer confidence indicators, for example, the University of Michigan consumer confidence, at the moment, consumer confidence is at the lowest level in 10 years. You look at that and say, well, wages are going up uh, very quickly. Employment has grown dramatically in the last 12 months. The stock market is still close to relatively high levels. Home prices are still very high. Why is consumer confidence going down? And if you look under the hood in the consumer confidence indicators, the answer that people give to that question is that consumer confidence is going down because of inflation. People are very worried about inflation. And of course, specifically, they're worried about home prices have become un unaffordable for many households. People are worried about car prices, used car prices, new car prices. People are worried about the price of filling gas on their car. If you add up those components in the CPI basket, meaning housing, autos and gas, it gets up to roughly... 40, 45%. And that means that on average, the household sector out there is just getting impacted more by inflation than what the Fed would like. And given the Fed's goal is to control inflation and get that down, then I think that it is not the case that the Fed will just back off and we have or have the Fed put. I think this is really a very different cycle relative to previous cycles. So that gets to the other question that you just asked, namely, how far can we go up? Well, the challenge now is, of course, that the first goal is to keep inflation from spinning out of control. But the risk, of course, is that if households now are finding some things unaffordable and thinking that inflation is a bigger issue, then, of course, that could have this impact where inflation actually becomes contractionary. And that means that the slowdown could then, in the worst case, be relatively quick. And that, of course, would mean that in that case, the Fed would begin to reverse course if inflation does come down. But generally speaking, there are some binding constraints from debt levels Debt levels from the government are a lot higher. That means that interest payments from the government would come and kick in much faster. And that would, of course, also be a constraint in terms of how much the Fed can raise rates. And broadly speaking, debt levels in the corporate sector, the household sector is a little bit better, but the corporate sector also being relatively high also means that we simply can raise interest rates as much as we could before. And if you combine that with all the arguments that Larry Summers and others have been making about secular stagnation, that there's headwinds from demographics in particular, also from technology, also uh, uh, more broadly speaking for globalization, all those things argue also for inflation eventually coming lower. So I would expect that we can see interest rates and the Fed funds rate go up over the next, uh, say, 12, 18 months. But as we get into the end of 2023, I would expect that we will begin to see the Fed funds rate in the best case flatten out and more likely start to go down again. So the answer to that question is there is certainly a limit to how much interest rates can rise. But it is very important to, again, remember that the goal with what the Fed is doing is to try to keep 
inflation from spinning out of control. So they they have a, a trickier dance this time, right? Because as you as you say, there are some big reasons maybe lurking behind um, behind the the backdrop here um, that will inhibit their ability to raise as much as they did before. And even last time before the pandemic, um, the Fed couldn't get above two and a half percent. And so so you've got this sort of cap, it seems, this lower cap on where they can raise rates to fight inflation. Um, you know, is there a risk that um, not to not to be a pessimist here, but is there a risk that we've, we're kind of looking at, um, you know, the, the worst of, of both sides, um, the Fed raising rates as as there are these sort of deflationary things uh, lingering, these factors lingering um, and and still um, maybe not being able to tighten enough to really curb inflation. You know, people talk about stagflation. Is, is this something to be more worried about these days? So I do think that that is a risk. So that's absolutely not uh, a baseline scenario and should not be a baseline scenario uh, in, in a forecast. Uh, but And there's not the consensus forecast. That's definitely not the Fed's forecast at all either. But if you go back and look at what happened in the late 1970s when inflation was going up, and even if GDP started to slow down, it ultimately was a recession that came as a result of that because the Fed said we got to get, and this was Paul Volcker in particular, of course, got to get inflation under control. So they kept on raising interest rates. And then the GDP and consumption and CapEx did start to slow down. So if the fear, of course, now is that if inflation does start to change behavior, and if you begin to see in particular behavioral changes on the parts of consumers saying, okay, I'm going to be a little bit more cautious with buying a car, more cautious with buying doable goods, say washers and dryers, a new phone. If you suddenly begin to see that uh, there are more fears in the household sector in terms of buying things because the uh, the consequences uh, could be more negative for GDP, uh, then uh, that will ultimately, therefore, of course, mean that uh, you could have a sharper slowdown on the other side because the Fed would have to exactly, again, try to get inflation expectations and inflation under control. So there is certainly a scenario where the economy could be slowing down. I wouldn't expect that to be this year, but in 2023, simply as the Fed begins to hike rates and consumers begin to step back. Uh, that's, of course, also what's reflected in markets at the moment. If you look at implied volatility, in particular in interest rates and swaption wall, is very, very high at the moment, exactly expressing this view that there are some people who are putting bets on the view that you could see rates go down very quickly again, and also see another people be putting bets on the, the view that we could see rates going up. So this disagreement in rates markets is very clearly expressed in implied volatility being elevated. And interestingly enough, VIX is still relatively low, so equity markets don't really worry too much about these different scenarios that are being debated in rates markets. So there is an interesting divergence between different financial markets in terms of what's going on at the moment and how worried uh, investors are about these different scenarios in terms of, as you were saying, the, the downside scenario potentially also playing out uh, that inflation could eventually turn out being contractionary. Um, so let's go back to the housing market for a second. We have a question from Neil. He says, what will all this tightening do to the real estate market? Um, he mentions that, you know, is it possible demand in housing is so high? Um, we've had chronic undersupply, it seems, for a while. Will um, Is it possible that rate hikes will not really phase this market? And that is absolutely exactly the core of the outlook for the housing market, that the supply in the housing market is very, very low. Home builders have been very cautious and home building and construction activity in residential has been very, very low and slow for a very long period. So we're going into the exit of the pandemic with very high demand. 
also including from first-time home buyers and very low levels of interest rates and strong wage growth and also strong employment growth, which has given significant tailwinds to housing demand with, at the same time, relatively low supply. And if you have very high demand and relatively low supply, it's not a surprise that home prices have gone up. Uh, as much as they have. I do uh, also understand and I do appreciate that mortgage rates have increased somewhat here in the last few weeks. But if you take a long chart of mortgage rates, it is still at, mortgage rates are still at very, very low levels by historical standards. And I think these more structural tailwinds to housing coming from strong employment growth, strong wage growth, significant demand from first time home buyers. Remember, the baby boomers are retiring and the baby boomers children, as you know, which are called eco boomers. They, they, a lot of people are around the age of 28 to 32. And those first time home buyers are exactly coming into the housing market at the moment, which is also another tailwind to housing. So, yes, um, there is some construction of homes that put potentially help on the supply side. Remember, it takes on average about seven months to, to build a new home. So we could by the end of this year see more supply in the housing market. Uh, but I still think that demand will be so strong that uh, even the increase we have seen in mortgage rates is not enough to derail the housing recovery. And in that sense, I still think the Fed is right that rates need to go up to try to cool gradually housing down more, which is a very volatile component of GDP, and also try to cool, again, CapEx down and also try to cool uh, consumer spending down. So the housing market is poised to still have, in my view, some nice tailwinds, again, at least for a few more quarters and most likely also all the way going into 2023. OK, here's a related question from Joseph. Um, he says, if the Fed shrinks the balance sheet, who is going to buy all of the, the treasuries um, and mortgage-backed securities they sell? And this is a really, really, really important question, of course, for rates markets. Uh, I mean, if someone, and this, if in this case, the Fed, has been buying $80 billion in treasuries every single month, then, of course, you should be asking, well, if they're no longer there, who will then buy $80 billion in treasuries? Uh, there is the... Good news, if you will, is that issuance of treasuries is going to come down a bit from the significant issuance we saw over the last 18 months because of the fiscal stimulus. Uh, but nevertheless, um, it does become a very critical question to ask generally, who are the buyers? Uh, more broadly, we have seen foreigners step in and buy a significant amount of treasuries more recently. But the question is also, will foreigners continue to do that? Uh, remember, foreigners hold in round numbers roughly 35% of all treasuries outstanding. So that means that foreigners have been an important source of buyer for treasuries uh, for, for many, many years. Uh, but the question looking ahead is, well, if there is a risk, in particular in fixed income, if there is a risk that interest rates are about to go up, remember, as we all know, when interest rates go up, the price of the bond goes down. So that's why if the Fed is now telling us that the level of interest rates is about to move higher, um, what is the willingness among foreigners? What is the willingness among households in the U.S.? What is the willingness among real money, meaning pension funds, insurance companies, to come in and buy U.S. rates when there is a risk that rates could be going up because the Fed is saying rates are going up? So the bottom line to that question is that it becomes very important to monitor in the data, uh, including the tick data, which shows data from abroad, from the Commerce Department, who the buyers are. The flow of funds data from the Fed gives some clues to what's been happening more recently. But they're looking ahead. If the Fed no longer buys 80 billion and stops that in March, it becomes very critical looking in April and May at the data and figuring out, OK, who are the new buyers? And does that mean that we need to reset at a higher level, in particular, a higher level of 10-year rates, which is what the consensus expects, 10-year rates to continue to go up? Um, now that the Fed is no longer buying in this significant amount. And remember, again, uh, in the market, we've been saying this for a long time, QE has had a very significant positive effect on holding interest rates down. 
and boosting the stock market and keeping credit spreads narrow. If the Fed stops doing QE, then the conclusion must be, if you think about this uh, symmetrically, that there must be therefore some opposite effects of those things that we have seen for uh, the last, again, 18 months. Okay. Um, I think we have time for a couple um, couple of more reader questions, listener questions, I should say. Um, here's one from Catherine. Um, she's getting into rising geopolitical risks. It seems like geopolitical tensions are rising as, you know, as we're talking about monetary policy is about to tighten. And, and that's not even to mention um, tighter fiscal policy. Um, Catherine asks, what happens if to the markets if Russia invades Ukraine um, and the U- U.S. gets involved um, in such a conflict? You know, we, we've talked about energy prices and, and all this and how there's such a big connection to inflation and growth. So what are your thoughts, Torsten, on um, geopolitics right now? Yeah, so generally geopolitics is, of course, important for financial markets. And generally what we have seen historically when geopolitical events uh, start to appear on our radar screens in markets is that there is a flight to safety. I mean, in other words, safe haven assets have generally performed better. Uh, that's, of course, uh, unclear at this point, uh, of course, uh, what will happen. And, um, and of course, markets uh, will need to figure out, uh, of course, exactly what different scenarios uh, uh, different investors have in mind. Uh, but generally, if there is a geopolitical risk, it has been something that has been creating more flows into safe havens. So in in, in that scenario, uh, of course, one obvious thing would be that that means that the risk-free assets, that of course means treasuries, uh, German bonds and government bonds, uh, will more likely uh, see some inflows. Uh, but a lot of that will, of course, depend on exactly what happens. And it's still um, uh, early in the sense that uh, we just don't know uh, how this will play out at this point. Okay, and I'm going to mash together a couple of questions about um, upcoming, um, about expectations for for monetary policy in the near term, say this year. So um, Jean-Marc asks, what will be the target balance sheet size um, for the Fed once, um, you know, QT, the reversal of QE gets going? And then Steve asks, um, Torsten, for your thoughts on how many rate hikes we will have this year. He kind of notes how um, some people think two, some people think four. We've had Jamie Dimon, for example, say seven. Um, so, so I guess this um, this dual question of Fed balance sheet size at the end of all of this and rate hikes. Yeah. So on rate hikes, uh, as you know, the market is at the moment, as we speak, pricing in four rate hikes. Uh, the latest dot plot from the Fed said three. Uh, I think three is uh, the right assumption at the moment. Uh, But I do think also, as I highlighted, that the inflation outlook is so uncertain. I mean, again, let's not forget inflation today is seven. And the goal for the Fed is that inflation should be two. There is an enormous distance between two and seven, which also tells us that there's a lot of uncertainty about how quickly will inflation come down? So given all the uncertainty about how quickly inflation will come down, there is also a lot of uncertainty about this very important question about how many rate hikes we could be seeing. And to the balance sheets, uh, as you and I also have been debating, Lisa, uh, well, what is the right level for the balance sheet? At the moment, the balance sheet is roughly just below $9 trillion. Uh, there has been a lot of FOMC members that have been discussing this, a lot of speeches about this, and a lot of debate. And it's not clear to me even that on the FOMC that everyone is in agreement about what the right level is in the future. Uh, But what is clear 
is that uh, there is a, a, a quite clear message from the Fed that they would like the balance sheet to be lower. And Jay Powell at the hearings more recently did say that the balance sheet should be significantly lower than where it is today. And there are some issues in terms of how much it comes down in terms of reserve balances and what the level of reserves that you want to have in the banking sector. Uh, but it's pretty clear that the level that we're at at the moment is, of course, very, very high uh, by historical standards. So I would say I think the Fed themselves probably doesn't even have themselves a terminal goal at this point in terms of where they want to be. But I think it's safe to say that it is trillions of dollars lower than where we are today. And that, of course, means that the Fed either needs to mature the, the stock of bonds that they have and therefore roll them off gradually, or there might even also be a case that if financial conditions, if they don't tighten it enough, and if therefore financial conditions therefore are still too easy and therefore inflation is getting still more uplift, that we might, in that case, begin to see the Fed actually start to sell outright selling of assets on the balance sheet in an attempt, again, to tighten financial conditions to try to keep to cool inflation down. So I think this is very, very important, again, from a financial market perspective. Let's not forget that the whole goal of this exercise for the Federal Reserve with tightening is to try to cool inflation down. So we should really be watching very carefully if inflation actually does cool down or not. And if it does not cool down enough, then I do think that they could begin to run the balance sheet down faster. So there are many moving parts to that very important question. Well, I wish we could keep talking, Torsten, but I think that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Torsten, for being here. My pleasure. We hope you listen to our next episode on Monday. Barron Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Deputy Editor Bud Levison speak to Ben Inker, co-head of GMO's Asset Allocation Team on the Outlook for U.S. Stocks and Bonds. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a nice weekend. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.